0: If you can begin to think about what you're doing as having use to someone beyond yourself, then I think you you enter into the realm of how practices research and artistic research can be of value. Recognizing that whoever picks up whatever you discover, that they will apply it in their own context, in their own way, but they will not be starting from scratch because you will have done this work and they will be able to draw from, extract out of, adapt, make use of the research that you've generated in a way that moves the entire field forward, moves us all forward.
1: Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue Series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Kristo Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Professor Bruce Barton, the Director of the University of Calgary's School of Creative and Performing Arts, and the Co-Artistic Director with Pill Hansen of Vertical City, an interdisciplinary performance hub they co-founded in Toronto in 2007. Bruce is a teacher and theorist of artistic research and a top creative practitioner. He has extensive experience as a director, playwright, dramaturg, and designer with numerous devisings and intermedial performance companies across Canada and internationally. In addition, he's published widely and edited major peer-reviewed and professional journals and is the editor-contributor of seven books, most recently the seminal collections, Performances Research, Methodology Knowledge Impact in 2017, and At the Intersection Between Art and Research in 2010. Bruce has also been very active in scholarly organizations he was the founder and co-convener of the Articulating Artistic Research Seminar at the Canadian Association for Theatre Research, which he began in 2012. He is also a co convenor of the Performances Research Working Group of the International Federation for Theatre Research and the Artistic Research Working Group of Performance Studies International, PSI. It was his involvement with these organizations that brought him to Africa last month, where he participated in the first IFTR conference in Ghana, followed by the first African PSI conference held in Johannesburg and hosted by the Witt School of Arts. I caught up with him shortly after his return to Canada to discuss his experience of the two conferences in two different African cities and to untangle with him the terminology around performances research and artistic research. Finally, we explore the very exciting work that he has done with his creative partner, Peel Hansen, with the Vertical City Performance, particularly their innovative engagements with performance and cognitive science and cognitive philosophy. Bruce, it's a great pleasure to engage with you after having met you at the PSI conference in Johannesburg and i'm really looking forward to this discussion i hope we can untangle or unpick a lot of the conceptual challenges in par and autistic research and the relationship between them
0: yeah it's a pleasure to be here
1: let's kick off with your reading your take of the experience of recently being in africa for not just one but two conferences, the International Federation of Theatre Research Conference that took place in Accra, Ghana. And then straight after that, you were here in Johannesburg, South Africa, for the Performance Studies International Conference. So as an outsider to this continent, I'm really interested to hear your take on the two conferences and also the difference between the two cities and the academic performance worlds that you encountered in those cities? You
0: hit the nail on the head to start with. I did come as an outsider in virtually every way. I'd never been to the African continent before. So it was something that I was usually looking forward to, something that I did some modest preparation for, but something that I could never be prepared for. It was eye-opening and uh, educational in so very many ways, deeply inspiring in so many ways. I realized that in my conversation since I've returned to Canada, as people ask me about my experience, that there's a potential to easily slide into sort of generalizations or even sentimentality about what a life-changing experience it was. And, and I'm cautious of that and, and want to avoid that, again, sentimentalizing the, the experience. But it was life-changing in many ways. It opened my eyes to so many aspects of a culture that one can read about and learn about secondhand, but one can only really experience by being present. And coming at the end of multiple years of very restricted travel, this was the first time I'd gone to a conference in three years. I was also going through that experience, as I think were many people at both conferences. I think that there was a a revelation for people about what it meant to be in the room again with a variety of people that you have exchanged with perhaps on an ongoing basis, but you have not seen or, or shared physical space with for, for quite a while. I recall in particular being at a, a board meeting for PSI, which we had a, a very long marathon meeting the day before the conference started many, many hours. And, and a colleague who I've actually conferenced with multiple times in the interim of the last three years who uh, walked into the room and I was just struck, first of all, by how big they were, the energy that they brought into the room. Uh, although I had so much exchange with them over multiple years, I, I, I realized I didn't know them at all. And and I'm not a in any way uh, an anti-technology person. I use it. I've always made use of, of a, a lot of advanced media in my performance work and in my research, but I was really brought back to how incredibly important it is to share physical space with each other. So my experience of Africa was also in that context. So it was quite loaded. I was extremely fortunate to be able to go to not just one, but to two countries, which reinforces both the the distinctiveness of each of the countries, but also the fact that all the countries in the continent will be quite distinct one from the next. And that helps to avoid any sort of generalizations as well. My time in in Accra was, it was the first landing point. It's my first introduction to the culture. And it was also at a conference that I haven't attended, of course, for, for multiple years. And I felt to me that there was a lot of catch up for me. I had my eyes very wide open all the time. And I was alerted to... aspects of the dynamics of the conference, but which were in so many ways shaped and defined by the culture of of the country and of the city. And I spent quite a bit of time wandering, which was ironic because I was on my way to Johannesburg where the the conference theme was wandering, but spent quite a bit of time moving around without necessarily a destination in order to try to just acquaint myself with, with, well, the physical environment, cultural environment, the interpersonal dynamics of individuals outside of a context of the conference. So as we walked down the street, as we moved through shopping areas, as we moved through markets, as we visited sites that were, some of which were intended for tourists and many of which were not, my sense was that the expression that kept coming into my mind is how incredibly foreign I was to this place, as opposed to this place being foreign to me, and how far from the kind of interpersonal dynamics, the kind of just day to day rhythms that are associated with the weather, that are associated with the population, that are associated with the economy. Uh, and so I, it was a, a huge learning experience for me, but just the tip of a learning experience. In terms of the conference itself, I was hugely struck by how incredibly welcoming it was, how attentive it was to the differences that everyone was bringing through the door in a way that North American and European conferences never are. I think in many of the, much, many aspects of the programming for North American and for European conferences, there is an anticipation of familiarity and an anticipation of sameness. There's so much taken for granted in terms of what will be appreciated and what won't be. And that was not my ever my experience in the African context. There was a an anticipation that we would be somewhat lost, an anticipation that we would be curious but not equipped and not competent to deal with many of the aspects of of day-to-day life, and that generosity figured into every aspect of the programming. So even just the way that the, the conference organizer was present somehow everywhere all the time, smiling at us, reassuring us, moving us around, telling us where to go, where, because often we didn't, need to, we didn't know. For such a large conference, that kind of presence on the ground was really quite remarkable. And the, the team of volunteers in both cities, it was remarkable the degree to which we were held and we were guided and we were treated with a, a level of generosity that I also think is unfamiliar uh, in the European and North American contexts. So totally apart from the programming, totally apart from, you know, the quality of the actual presentations, most of which the organizers have no control over, the character of the hosting was extremely rich and and extremely generous. I spend, as you, I think you you probably know, or probably can suspect, I spend the majority of my time at all of these conferences within a sub-community. So at the IFTR, it's the Performances Research Working Group, and at psi it's the artistic research working group and even just the differences in the titles is you know instructive in ways that we can talk about but the performances research working group in particular has a, a long history of collaborative work indeed my first encounter with the, the group was about 12 or 13 years ago where i was at the point where i really was ready to stop going to conferences because i i i, I Although apart from the networking aspect of it and, and seeing people that you don't see on a regular basis, I, I did not find the traditional framework for conferences rewarding anymore at that point in my my life and my career. But I walked into, almost by accident, into a, a two-day pre-conference meeting of the Performances Research Working Group. And I was instantly and and. and Unquestionably reassured us to. Oh, this is why we go to conferences. This ability to spend time with a group of people in a process of inquiry, in a process of of generation, even creation, but primarily of investigation, in a con- in a context that is again generous that is supportive that is open that is curious in which judgment is is left outside the door it was so eye opening and so reinvigorating that within a year i was a convener of the group and and stayed a convener of the group for for well actually two terms so a period of almost 6 years i'm no longer a convener of the group but the returning to this group this year just the the memory of the value of that exchange was again, instant and and unquestionable in, in my experience. So it was, my experience of Accra was in many ways shaped by that re-engagement with a group of people who I I respect, who I have strong ties to in terms of friendship, and both new and old. So that's one of the other qualities of this group is that there's almost always a, about half the group, so eight or nine people who are who have been there multiple times before and who have sort of pre-existing relationships and shorthand communication and often shared interests and a a brand new set of people who are somehow within minutes part of that cohort. There's very, very rarely a sense that there are sort of different degrees of engagement or different degrees of acceptance. And those new people often, of course, bring the provocation and they bring the the new questions that problematize and, and reinvigorate those that we've been discussing over years and years. So, and, and the, I, I guess if we wanted to sort of make a, a, a jump into the relationship with PSI, primary characteristic of the IFTR group is that people bring expertise and they bring experience and they bring interests, but rare, but no one presents on those things. Those things are our ways of introducing ourselves to one another. And then the work is almost exclusively collaborative. So things are created over the context of the week. Sometimes they're workshops, sometimes they're presentations, sometimes they're demonstrations or representations. But often what they are is an experience. Almost always what they are is an experience that happens because this group of people finds themselves in this place at this time, which arguably are the sort of three basic criteria of Practices research, which is, you know, that it's situ- situated, that it's emergent, and that it's collaborative in that regard.
1: Bruce, a quick question, particularly for younger scholars here in Africa who have to decide what organizations they can afford to join. What is the difference between the IFTR and PSI? What would a younger scholar who's wanting to? really move into engagement with an international network, what would they get from the two different organizations?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And it, it too, I mean, these are all such big questions. We could talk a long time about the relationship between the two organizations. They are the two organizations that I still uh, attend. So I've been members, a member of I don't know, a dozen different academic organizations and, and professional organizations o- over multiple decades. But these are the two that I, I continue to participate in. Well, to be frank, I can participate because of, the, of these two groups, the Artistic Research Working Group and because of the Performances Research Working Group. But the conferences are quite different. IFTR tends to be larger to a degree of sometimes twice as large, sometimes not quite that that much. And this year, I think this year it was pro- that's probably the, the nature of, of the you know the relationship between the two in terms of size. But clearly, IFTR is focused on on theater research, and so that theater is a very broad term, and, and there are many many different approaches to theater. But theater remains the explicit point of focus and the point of, of connection between everybody that's there. Performance Studies International is a, a, a much more varied community because it's a much more varied field. There are lots of performance practitioners uh, coming from theatre, dance, music, but there are many people who are not performers or, or performing artists of any sort, whose primary interests are political or sociological or psychological or technological, and who are looking at performance as as an idea as a concept as a set of strategies as opposed to performance as a field as an artistic field so i i think it one of the key questions would be the degree to which uh, you know when you're looking from one conference to the other is what your primary areas of interest is and right away i think that will allow you to make some some immediate decisions but there are many other differences between the, the groups and you know i've been on the board of psi for for many years and and so I'm I'm of course partial to it and and what I particularly love about psi is the, the sort of the broad disciplinary range that it explores and that it embraces and my own practice is is highly interdisciplinary so that feels appropriate but also the ways in which it attempts to engage sort of directly with the politics in the broadest sense of the word of any of the contexts that it moves into its engagement across a breadth of human experience, which I suppose in many ways is, was the inspiration for performance studies and remains its, you know, one of its defining characteristics, allows for that much more a diverse community to, to form and a, a diverse subject matter to be explored. You know, I'm thinking back on the PSI of this year, which was similarly as you know, I was talking about the ex- my experience at IFTR and Accra, the level of generosity was, was remarkable in, in uh, Johannesburg as well. Uh, just so grateful to the team for the experience they organized for us. But one of the things that PS they did in PSI is that they took us into so many different parts of the city. They moved us all around the city to theater spaces, but non-theater spaces as well. We went off to the, Center for the Less Good Idea, we went to the Market Theatre, we went to the Sueto Theatre, we went to places that theatre or performing arts individuals would be interested in, but also uh, social scientists or psychologists or or sociologists would would be interested in as well. And many of the conversations, many of the presentations focused on that disciplinary diversity. So I guess it takes me back to my first point, which is about the relationship to discipline. And if... mm -hmm, well, speaking really pragmatically, I think yo- particularly younger scholars and emerging scholars tend to understand conferencing as a place to meet people and to potentially put your work in front of people who may ultimately have an opportunity to to hire you or to give you work. There, there's, it, would be, it would be naive to pretend that that's not a significant factor for, for young people and, uh, and emerging people. So there, again, it depends on what type of a organization would you like to work with? If you're primarily a theatre scholar or a theatre practitioner, then IFTR is probably the right place to have your work made visible. But if you are more interdisciplinary in your orientation and you're more open in terms of the disciplinary application of your skills and your education, then PSI would probably be the more effective community to engage with.
1: Bruce, I want us just to move into a more theoretical reflection on the concepts and I found your introduction one of the four introductions to the volume on performances as research and your introduction was called discussions on a line of flight what I found Particularly striking, apart from the way that you characterize this very complicated field, which I think, again, a lot of younger scholars and practitioners, not even younger scholars and practitioners, but scholars and practitioners really struggle with the variety of terminologies. You know, I'm thinking of here at WITS, for instance, or the PhDs that I get to be an external examiner of. They'll often describe themselves as undertaking. Practice as research or practice driven or practice led. Yet, we, as you know, with here at WITS, we, we've really nailed our colors to the mast with artistic research in the sense that it is closest to creative practice that is strongly informed by an artistic positioning and a sense of valuation of creativity, engagement with the body or the materials in a way that perhaps other forms of practice-led or practice-based research don't have quite that commitment to the artistic. Well, I must say I have colleagues here who are, are very critical of the notion artistic. They feel it comes with far too much colonial baggage. My answer to them is, sure, but so does the concept of research, Uh, maybe even more colonial baggage. But I'd really like you to unpack the key points in that paper, and I found particularly useful the way that you used the three categories of knowledge, methods, and impacts. And the question of impact is really the top of everybody's mind at the moment because universities are demanding that scholars, not just in the creative arts, creative and performing arts, but that scholars demonstrate some form of impact beyond the university. That, that's become a real demand. So maybe working with those three notions of knowledge, methods, and impact, and a general sense of the terminological challenges in this diverse and moving field? These
0: are questions that I've been wrestling with for a very, very long time, and, and they go back to my early days as, as an academic. I, I entered academia somewhat reluctantly, but had an affinity for it and recognized it as a context in which potentially my art, I could sort of base my artistic practice in an environment where questioning was at a premium. And that was sort of the way I always thought about it is that i I could find a good paying part time job somewhere and and try to become a, a professional artist or I could follow an academic route and and it did feel to me that the at least the hypothetical basis in curiosity and inquiry that we associate with academia was a would be a fruitful place to pursue that, but it is the case that in for oh a good decade of my first time as an academic working at well uh, the the biggest university in Canada, I was told that, yes, they wanted me to pursue all my academic inquiry. And indeed, they wanted to celebrate the fact that I was working as a professional artist. But if I wanted tenure, it would be on traditional scholarship. So for the first seven years of my time at that institution, I lived two lives I and I worked two jobs because I did all the things that the traditional academics were doing. And I was also working as an artist. But it was at the point where the opportunity for tenure emerged. And I said, well, I can't do this anymore. And I said explicitly to them, I can't do this anymore. From now on, what I want to do is I want to look at my own work. I want to interrogate my own work as an academic, as a researcher, but I wanted my own creative practice to be the focus of that work. And they celebrated that. And and I went on to have a very rich period of time at that university. I worked there for, for 15 years before moving to where I am now in Calgary. And it was this sort of you you mentioned the the idea of of accountability one of the courses i teach here at the university of calgary is uh, called interdisciplinary research processes or and it's or interdisciplinary processes i guess it's it's called and we're we are looking at almost all the work is practice what we would call i would call practice as research for reasons i can touch on in a minute or two but why talk uh, we talk a lot about the fact that as researchers, we have both responsibilities and we have accountabilities. So we have responsibilities to the people that we're working with. We have responsibilities to our communities, depending on the degree to which our work is engaged with a a broader community. And so much practice as research tends to be, but we also have accountabilities. And those are related to the institution. Often they're related to issues of funding. And as where I live and work, you only can succeed as a professional artist if you are engaging thoroughly with a granting structure that has all kinds of accountability built into it, both inside the university and outside the university. You have accountability to the disciplinary specificity of the disciplines you're working with. And I encourage the students that I work with to try to, to, the, to whatever degree they can, to keep those ideas some, somewhat separate, although there's lots of overlap. Because you really want to make sure you're living up to your responsibilities, but you also want to make sure you've got a skill set in place and a framework in place that allows you to live up your, to the those to whom you are accountable, if you want to continue the work. So I think in many ways, the concept of practices research emerges, again, in the northern world, out of a sense of obligation to validate the work that we, we do. It's not always the case, but in almost all the cases where I've been engaged in, in an effort to sort of arrive at terms and vocabulary and even definitions, it has been out of a, of a sense of an obligation to provide evidence of, a, of validity, and account um, of, of, of worth of, of the work that we do. And I was thinking about this this morning, actually, that any definition or any understanding that comes out of that sense of someone looking over your shoulder or someone calling you to task is going to be inevitably grounded in that context and limited by that context. So although in the first few years of engaging with what I was at that time calling practices research or practice-based research, I guess. This is about 15, 16 years ago, working actually in the European context, in the context of the what's called the, the NSU or the, the Nordic Summer University. There was a period of time for a couple of years where I felt it was really important that we arrived at what a definition of practice-based research was. Because if we were going to be taken seriously, we had to say, it's this. And of course, every time you say it's this, you're also saying, it's not this, that the, these other things are are not it. And Happily, it only took me about two years to get over that sort of initial knee-jerk response. And in the the, so the 15 years or so since then, I've really, really been attempting to create a fluidity and a flexibility of terminology that doesn't lead to vagueness. I don't think vagueness helps anyone, but allows for a wide range of contexts in which this work can take place. So, for instance, I, I... I, I Done a, a, a fair bit of work with someone that some you're, you may be familiar with, and which some of your you know people listening may be familiar with Robin Nelson, who has a very important book called Practice Based Research in the in the Performing Arts, and Practice as Research in the Performing Arts. It's important that we make that distinction, and it's a very very influential book. It's a very good book, but in it he's quite explicit about the fact that it emerged out of a context where in a particular national and political context, artists were being called to account in ways that they had not been called into account before by the university system. And so he was helping them translate their artistic practice into something that could be understood as research. And the reason why the system that he provides works so well is that it understood its context so very, very well. But if that's not your context, then that may not be the model for you. And I think that it is indeed the highly, highly situated nature of artistic research or practices research that because it's coming out of a very specific context at a very specific time being done by a very specific people, the only really thorough definition is the one that emerges out of that context for those people on that project can feel like a cop-out, I think, at times, because, oh, well, then it's anything and everything. And that's, I, I, I would not, I don't agree with that. And we can talk, where, this is where we get into the idea of knowledge, method, impact, and we can talk about that. I, but I think that, I, for instance, I run a, an organization here in Canada called Articulating Artistic Research. And they, with the emphasis there on articulating as a a recognition of, if not the obligation, then certainly the huge benefit of being able to frame what you're doing in a way that someone who's not doing it with you can understand. So when I teach practices research in the context of a university, and I taught that at the University of Toronto for, for many, many years, one of the key places we started was, it was with the idea of utility. What is the usefulness of what you're doing? And for, for me, that's how artistic practice can, can enter the sphere of research is that it's is not out of trying to generate some sort of fully repeatable or transferable knowledge that, that will not move or change from context to context, quite the opposite, it will. But if you can begin to think about what you're doing as having use to someone beyond yourself, then I think you, you enter into the realm of how practices research and artistic research can be of value. Recognizing that whoever picks up whatever you discover that they will apply it in their own context, in their own way, but they will not be starting from scratch because you will have done this work and they will be able to draw from, extract out of, adapt, make use of the research that you've generated in a way that moves the entire field forward, moves us all, all forward. When I talk with my students, I talk with my, my collaborators about it, I, I suggest that if we can accomplish that, if the work that we do can have utility not just for us as we're making something, but for someone else who's going to turn around and either ask a question or explore something, do their own research, then we will have we will have made a, a positive contribution. In terms of those those three key concepts that you raised, when we created that that anthology, which actually came out of the Performances Research Working Group at IFTR. It was a, a project that emerged out of that. So my my co-editors, Ed Arlander and, and Ben Spatz and, and Melanie Dreyer-Lude, we quite explicitly wanted to, what we wanted to do was to produce a volume that moved past what can sometimes feel like the smorgasbord quality of practices research collections. There are some very, very good ones out there, but they... They seem to rather defiantly not organize what they're doing because they're looking to create this open space for many, many different kinds of voices. And we didn't want in any way to impose a framework on our collection. But we did ask everyone to think about these concepts and how these concepts resonated within their own practice. At my own university, whether it's here uh, in Calgary or, or previously at, a- at any of the universities I've, been, been, I've worked at, I have made a very sort of active effort within, within the institution to argue that performances research, practices research, artistic research, this sphere of activity has the potential to significantly broaden the epistemological horizons of research within the institution. We know that institutions are perhaps to some degree of necessity uh, addicted to metrics that are easily transferable and easily understood by governments primarily so that has to do with granting dollars it has to do with patents it has to do with inventions it has to do with set numbers of recognizable publications those of us who work in artistic research often engage with those fields but by no means of necessity and as a rule, the true value of the work or the the, the most significant value of the work escapes those categories. And I don't think it's just about metrics. I think it's about, again, the epistemological range of how knowledge is defined. And that's what I think artistic research in particular has a, a strong capacity for, is to have us think about different ways of knowing. That's something that Again, Robin has made some really strong contributions and he has a particular article called "The Problem of Knowledge." It was a performance research article it's quite you know it's been around a long time now and it started his distinctions between you know knowing what and knowing how and knowing of and he's developed that quite extensively in ways that I think are really useful that get us to think about the types of knowledge that different, certain kinds of research generate the idea then of knowledge and then methods, we talked about whether that second term might be methodology, but anyone who's again entered into the sphere of conversations knows that there are those who would argue that, for instance, practice as research is a methodology, and there were those who argue that it is a context in which many methodologies, pre-existing methodologies, can be brought to bear. That's not an argument I, I engage with very much anymore, but I do think that it's having a knowledge of, of methodology and having a clear understanding of why you're using the methods you're using and what kinds of knowledge they reflect are really critical points for me. In order not to be creating conflicting observations or, or explorations or discoveries, I think it's really, really important to have an initial set of methods in place, to have a research framework in place. Not one that's going to hold you rigidly on a spot that you don't want to be or your research doesn't want to be, but one that I I suppose if one wanted to look for uh, physical metaphors, it's a framework that one can pick up and move around and adapt and, and adjust relatively quickly and easily. But implicit in it always is the idea that you're working inside a framework, because otherwise, then you are sort of flying in the wind, which is one of the primary critiques that's often brought towards this type of work. And that framework is there for you, but it's also there for others to have a sense of what it is you're attempting to accomplish. The question of impact is a really, really important one, as you've already indicated. And it's not just important inside academia, Uh, certainly in most northern contexts, whether we're talking European or North American, all of the major arts funding organizations now have at the forefront of their criteria the concept of either impact or benefit or you know engagement but what they're looking to do is is they're asking all of us as we apply for our grants as to how will this be beneficial to society how will this move beyond our you know aesthetic accomplishment within artistic practice to a point where it will actually contribute to society i think if we can think of impact in that way, as opposed to yet another measurement, as yet another sort of uh, hurdle we have to jump. But if we can recognize that artistic practice has always engaged with life, indeed has always emerged out of the impetus of, of lived experience, that this is really just a way of both sort of articulating and advancing the potential benefit of our artistic practice. So for instance, at, here at my own school, we've just gone through a major process Well, we're in the midst of a major process of sort of redefinition, but we've come up with a, a brand new mission and vision and commitment statement and vision, if you will, flips it's it, on its head the idea of bringing art to life. And what we're suggesting is what we're, we're trying to do is bring life to art so that we never forget where art comes from and where it goes back to. And I think that's one of the key ideas around, for me around this idea of utility and this idea of artistic research is that when we look at impact, then we have the potential through these expanded epistemology, through these expanded understandings of knowledge, to have an even broader level of impact, a more immediate level of impact, often a more focused and a more lasting level of impact in terms of the benefit of art in life, as opposed to, li- to life or, or for life in that regard.
1: I wish you all the best with this new mission statement and new approach building around that notion of impact. I want to, in the last part of our conversation, really encourage you to talk about the theatre company, Vertical City Performance, particularly how that has functioned in terms of the research, the artistic research paradigm. I'm particularly interested in work that you've been doing together with your partner, Peel Hansen that has really gone very far in terms of interdisciplinarity through engagement with cognitive science, but at the same time has pushed physicality and the possibilities of physicality and performance as far. So I'm really fascinated to hear you talk about the approach of your company.
0: We founded Vertical City not exactly sure the year. I think it was 2007. So it's, you know, it's around 16 years old at this point. The first inspiration for it, and this may relate uh, back to this idea of physicality from the outset, its first iteration was when we were approached by a couple of aerial artists, so trapeze based artists, who did uh, a form of new circus, but in many ways, quite familiar to anyone who has seen trapeze work. They were very interested in, in moving beyond what they understood as the framework of traditional trapeze work, and they were interested in in theater as an idea. Neither of them had theater training, although they were part of a circle of of people who who did, and so they were quite a quite attracted by the idea of theater, and so they they asked me if I would I would direct something for them, and initially I didn't have time to direct, but I did do some dramaturgy work for them and they were doing some really interesting things where they were bringing together sort of poetry reading and musical performance and aerial work. But it was quite clear that these were things all happening in a shared space, but having very little impact on each other. And so I I said, this is sort of an interesting multidisciplinary assortment, but, but if you want to move your work beyond, I suggest that it needs to be more interdisciplinary in nature. And they said, well, Okay, Smarty, uh, you directed then. So what we did, interestingly enough, and I was thinking about this this morning as well, that uh, I, I have to give us, in hindsight, give us credit for it, is that uh, what I said is that we shouldn't make a show right away. What we should do is we should take time and pull together a group of interesting, interested and interesting people to learn from each other. And so what we did actually for the better part of a year was every weekend, uh, the two aerial artists, Pew, myself, a couple of musicians, a couple of physical theater performers, and occasionally a visual artist would give ourselves three or four hours in, in their trapeze studio to just explore, to teach things to each other. So we all learned a, a little bit of trapeze work. We all learned to play an instrument. We all learned some rendering techniques in, in terms of, of computer generation and the intention was in no way for us to become even competent in each other's fields, but to start to bring each other's practices into our, our own bodies so that when we began to then work with each other, we were working not just from a a conceptual understanding or appreciation for what each other was doing, but from a little bit of a kinesthetic sense that we, uh, uh, that we had, we could feel what they were doing in our bodies. And that has become, I think that has remained a, a, particular constant in in everything that we've done since then now vertical city really the only real constants in 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 vertical city are peel and myself so there are people that we we've worked with multiple times but there are no we do we don't have members we don't have an ensemble we don't even really have associate members what we have is a, a group of really interesting artists that we work with and most of our performances are defined by a moment where we say we would really like to work with you so there's something really interesting about what you're doing. And we would like you to come and do something with us. And perhaps simply by for, you know, fortunate chance, no one's ever said no. So, so we've worked with some really, really interesting people. And what we tend to do, and this is something that I think informs certainly all of my teaching, and it informs all of my artistic practice as well as my research, is to create a context where people with a high degree of specialization and a high degree of accomplishment in that specialization are invited into a context where they can't do what they normally do the way that they normally do it so we create a a sense of instability and vulnerability but it has to be to what the very best of our ability equitable across everyone so it's not about having some people out of balance it's about having everybody out of balance and the metaphor it's, it's playful, but I, I think it captures it, is that when some people are out of balance in a room, well, the others watch them fall over. When everybody's out of balance, we all ha- cling on to each other to stay upright. And w- I think in many ways, what I, I, I think anyway, audience is experienced in our performance is a bunch of really, really interesting people holding on to each other so they stay upright. Conceptually, figuratively, but also physically in interesting ways for instance in that early iteration working with the aerial artists one of the key things that we did is we asked them to give up the primary elements that aerial artists work with which is speed and and moment you know momentum and and uh work using gravity to to your benefit well everything that we asked them to do we asked them to do at one third or one quarter this the tempo which basically throw puts gravity back with a, a, an abrupt force, and robs the, it robs you of the ability to to use your own weight as a to gain momentum and to to move through things. You have to actually work your way through things. And it was utterly fascinating to all of us how incredibly captivating it was to watch them do this work. And as they got stronger and stronger, they continually asked for more obstacles, for for more challenges because they were getting really drunk with it. I think to a degree. And the piece that emerged out of that was this showcase of of people working really hard in contexts that work against what what they were really good at. And so, as as I say, I I think we've continued to develop that idea. I think it's become more sophisticated than that and and less explicit than that in recent performances. But uh, another example of that, for instance, is where we like to draw upon disciplinary characteristics, but use them in a context where an audience member can't simply settle into the conventions of, of the form. So I started work in in performance as a playwright and as a dramaturg, and, and I still create most of the scripts for everything that we do. So I do think in terms of textual form and often I think in terms of story, but those, these stories and, and these familiar textual tropes or techniques are all offered in a context where audiences cannot simply deal with them the way that they would in a traditional theatre piece. And usually that's by physically putting the audience member in a state of physical imbalance as well. We also work with something that we call memory weaving, which is a process whereby we invite audience members to contribute deeply seated sensory experiences that they have had at some other point in their life, which we have a, a through a, a very careful process, we ask them to extract them from the actual situation they were in, because we don't want them to necessarily go back to difficult or or traumatic moments. But we're interested in those sensory experiences that we all carry deeply in our bodies as building blocks for a, a new story or a new context, a new performance. And there's something about for audience members, it would seem, at least, this is our experience, that when they recognize a very deeply seated experience of their own as, as an integral piece of the performances being created, it brings them a, a really visceral sense of ownership and participation and collaboration. The only way we can do that, of course, is that is by us constantly being off balance in relationship to the audience. We have to be constantly vulnerable to them and prepared to offer them as much as we're asking back from them so i i've written about this uh this idea as what i call a, a a dramaturgy of embrace and again it's a it's a metaphor but with the idea that you know you can grab onto someone or you can hug someone but that's a unilateral action And embrace is when you open your arms and if someone steps in with their arms open and and you close around each other and that is what what we are constantly looking for in our performance context that that moment where the audience and the performance are opening their arms to each other and, and closing around each other.
1: Do you think of that practice around presumably leading to productions? Do you think of that as research? And how have you taken that practice, that disbalancing of performers and audiences? How have you taken that into cognitive science, into an engagement with cognitive science?
0: That takes us back again to that, that first iteration because it sort of established the, the landmark or or at least a, a practice for us and you mentioned my partner peel hansen who is a, a phenomenal dramaturg and a, a really phenomenal scholar as well and her work is primarily in the intersection between or at least has been for many years at the intersection between dramaturgy and cognitive science and she's quite deeply familiar with the most important trends within cognitive science. She's not a scientist. She doesn't have a scientific education, but she engages deeply in, in science and, and draws from science, both its discoveries, but also its practices, and is therefore highly, highly meth- methodical in, in her work, in her research. She and I actually approach things somewhat differently, well, considerably differently in the sense that I'm, I'm also drawing on a fair bit of contemporary cognitive awareness, but I tend to approach it through cognitive philosophy, which is a a quite different orientation from cognitive science, which is why I think when we combine our two perspectives, they're they're quite fruitful. But early on, there was an article we wrote around the creation of that first performance I mentioned with the aerial artists. And what we did, it was for the New York based journal TDR, the drama review uh, out of New York university. And what we did is we, we realized that we had done, we had approached that work with those artists as what one might call artistic research, but not as necessarily a practice as research process. And this gets us back to the distinction between the two. I think in many ways, artistic research is a, a broad enough term that the nature of the utility, the nature of what one brings out of it can be very, very widely defined. Whereas I think with practice as research there's a higher level of expectation that some, there will be f- some familiar documentation there will be some transferable forms of output often in writing that someone who's not an artist and someone who, who who doesn't necessarily engage in artistic practice can benefit from i think practices research tends to anticipate a more broad non-specialized audience and that i think in many ways goes back to That idea, for instance, in the case of Robin Nelson's approach to it, where we have these artists who now have to talk to politicians and and explain to them why their work is important. So I think that's a a, a significant difference between artistic research and practice as research. So what we asked ourselves was, what would that artistic research have looked like if we'd begun it as a a practice as research process? At the time, we were using the term practice-based research, but I think I think nowadays we would think of it as a practice, as research. And what that would involve would be an ability to anticipate those accountabilities that we've talked about to a university, to a funder, but also potentially to other artists who who will also find things of use in your practice. It's a quite detailed framework that we created in relation to that project. So I I don't know that I can do it justice today. But what we we posited in that first instance was that if we were to do it as practice, as research, what we would need to do is create multiple spheres of activity. And there would be a sphere of activity that would fully acknowledge our relationship to the university and to publishing and to other forms of, of academic accountability. There would be a sphere of activity that would recognize our desire to create fully sort of formulated strategies and tools that artistic other, other artists could use. But there would be this central sphere that we at that time called the third, the third space in which those accountabilities did not enter. So it really was a, a place of play that no one was looking over their shoulder at at who would be expecting them to generate something. And we felt that we could have that third space precisely because we knew the other spheres were out there waiting to be attended to. So we could forestall those levels of accountability for something that was much more like an open and playful exchange amongst the collaborators. I would suggest that that framework of those at least three spheres has informed most of our work since then. And the I not you know not surprisingly, as someone who's worked inside a university as well as as a professional artist for decades now, I do a lot of writing about my own work, and it depends on the project as to whether that writing is in advance of the project or during the project or after the project so even when i've I approach something with a collaborator, for instance, a professional collaborator who has no interest in artistic research, and we create we work. As professional artists and we create in a professional context and we create an artwork, I will then write about it afterwards and I will take a reflective sort of artistic research perspective on the work. The other end of that process is something that emerges out of a grant, for instance, that is specifically to create something and has, if it's within academia, has a very clear set of sort of expectations on the part of the granting body as around issues of documentation, dissemination, various forms of output, your relationship to existing knowledge. So that would require quite a bit of framework building in, in advance of the work. And then there's the, 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 the pieces that, in to a degree like that early project that we had, uh, that we, that we created where we were aware, we were asking questions through the work, We weren't doing it with anything approaching sort of a scientifically methodical approach, but we were carrying those questions consciously in our minds and our bodies as we were doing the work, documenting in anticipation of some sort of articulation of that utility for others. And I wouldn't even suggest that those are sort of three steady spots on on a continuum. I think there are many so that of, you can move back and forth between those two points. And I think I do all the time. I think Peel is more, Peel tends to work more from the research orientation. Uh, I think I tend to work probably more from the artistic orientation, which is why we work together all the time because we, we pull each other closer to the center on that work.
1: And Bruce has your work, your performance work, Had engagement with cognitive scientists? Or is it that your work is informed by what's coming out of
0: cognitive science? Is is there a dialogue? Yeah. And that's actually probably a good a good way to distinguish between the orientation that I bring and that Peel brings. Peel engages with cognitive scientists on a regular basis. And and is able to engage with them in their literature and, and in their frameworks in a way that I simply haven't prepared myself to do. Whereas what I will tend to do is I'll tend to engage directly with cognitive philosophers, most of whom have that much more familiarity with cognitive science than I do, but some of which are, are also working from secondary sources and are drawing the new discoveries within cognitive science into a philosophical discussion. That tends to be the way that that it enters into my work. But because Pila and I collaborate, well, we collaborate on on everything because she's my creative partner, she's my research partner, but she's also my life partner and we have a child and and that type of thing. So we we because we're working together, our work tends to cover that full spectrum. So she's often engaging with cognitive scientists, I'm engaging with cognitive philosophers and we're finding a meeting place between the, the those two those two orientations towards the work. So it's 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 not in every project that we do, at least not explicitly, so we're not drawing on sort of a, a specific uh, theoretical framework or a specific scientific discovery by any stretch of the imagination, but an awareness of the degree to which perception is is the gateway of experience informs all the work that we do. In that sense, it's implicit, I would suggest, in virtually everything we do.
1: Bruce, thank you very much. All the best with both the academic and conference work and the company, Vertical City, which I think is doing really fascinating and challenging work in the area of performance and thinking with performance. Yeah, thank
0: you so much. As I say, it's been a real pleasure.
1: You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, the Canadian performance theorist, theatre director and writer, Bruce Barton. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.